We're in chapter 9 of the Gospel of John, and um, last week I gave you a thought paper assignment, but nobody gave me the paper, so you all fail. I'm just kidding, but I don't think I did give you a thought paper assignment. But as I hope you, uh, I hope you agree, we, we had a little bit of a technical problem, so we didn't have it produced. Um, we couldn't have it reproduced, so you can't go back and listen to it, I don't think. But the most important part of chapter 8 is, of course, verse 58, which is without question, arguably the apex of the of the chapter in this enormously important debate where Christ claims to be Yahweh, before Abraham was, I am. And we talked a lot about that last week. The, the Pharisees tried to kill him, verse 59, because he, as far as they were concerned, was committing blasphemy. Uh, but his hour had not yet come, so they couldn't do anything to him. Chapter 9 continues the narrative of what is happening at this event when Jesus is in Jerusalem. So he's still in Jerusalem. He's still in the area of the temple, and we'll, we'll kind of get the context as we go into it. So let's dig in. As we look at chapter 9, this is a fairly familiar chapter, but it's really important how we organize this chapter. So first of all is verse 1, which Jesus um, passes by a man who's blind. Then you have a question and answer session between him and his disciples, verses 2 through 5. And then Christ does the actual miracle, verses 6 through 12. And it's an unusual miracle because of how Jesus restores sight to this man. I mean, it's a very unusual, it's almost bizarre uh, in terms of how he does it. Then after the miracle, there are a series of interrogations. Because what happens is the Pharisees, in effect, are like lawyers, and they're trying to gather evidence to condemn Jesus. So there's an interrogation of the man who receives sight, verses six, uh, chapter 9, verses 13 through 17. Then there is an interrogation of his parents, verses 18 through 23. Then there's a second interrogation of the man who receives sight from verse 24 through 34, uh, four, the, end of, uh, the end of that. And then what John does is he summarizes for us the effects. And there are several of those in verses 39 through 41. I'm not sure we're going to get through the entire chapter because there's a lot to do, but I didn't think we could get through all of chapter 8 last week, and we did. So let's get started. You sort of with me? I'll go through that outline structure as we go through it, but I wanted to give you the big picture. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. So Jesus is still in Jerusalem, and this man that who has been, we don't exactly know how old he is. Some suggest he's a teenager. Some suggest he's an adult, young adult, and I'll explain why in a minute. Then this creates sort of a dilemma for the disciples. And they asked Jesus a very theological question. Rabbi, was not this that this man sinned or his parents? Excuse me. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, 
what the disciples are doing is they are asking Jesus a question, but it reflects the popular theology of the day. And really, you know, to some extent, even in the 21st century, some people still believe that. They're asking, how do we explain his blindness? He's been blind from birth. How do we explain that? Sin? That's their assumption, because they don't say, Rabbi, did this man sin? They say, who sinned? The man or his parents? So they are buying into the popular theology. They're buying into the assumption. This man is blind because of sin. And so today, sometimes, not always, thankfully, but sometimes Christians can fall into that into that, that kind of assumption, that set of assumptions. If somebody's really sick or has some calamity, it's because they sinned. So how does Jesus handle the question? Verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. Now, the, the first part of Christ's response is really important for them to hear. It's really important for you and me to hear. Let me broaden this into some theological statements. We live in a fallen, broken world. We live in a world that is in rebellion against God. And because it's a fallen, broken world, there will be illness, there will be pain, there will be sickness, there will be accidents, there will be natural disasters, there will be hurricanes and tornadoes, there will be earthquakes, there will be volcanic eruptions. They are all aspects of a fallen, broken world. And so it is because of the rebellious nature of this planet, but it is not necessarily correct to assume that just because someone's sick, it's because they specifically sinned and God is immediately judging them. That's what Christ is challenging. So his answer then is, it's not that this man sent his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus is offering an enormous, big picture, 100,000 foot view that from the sovereign providential purposes of God, the works of God are going to be displayed here. This is going to bring glory to God. This is going to manifest God working. So Christ then, and in the editors, they start a new sentence. We must work the works of him who sent me. And works of him goes back to the works of God in the previous sentence. Who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So it's, this, is, this is really remarkable, because Jesus, number one, is challenging the popular theology. Number two, he's saying, God's sovereign purposes are at work here. And we, there's an urgency to this. Night is coming. There, there, there is soon going to be an end to these messianic miracles. So, so we ought to work now. We have to do this now. There's a sense of urgency. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
Now, Christ has said this a couple of times, and he says this again. Let's one more time explore that metaphor, I am the light of the world. Light exposes darkness. Light exposes darkness for what it is. Light is a figure of speech for the revelation of God. Light shows us the true nature of reality. It shows us what really is going on. And so Jesus is in the world as the light of the world to expose sin for what it is, expose Satan's dark kingdom for what it is, and offer the world an alternative. So what Jesus is really saying is, this man and what I'm about to do for him is part of the sovereign purposes of God. It will evidence that I, meaning Jesus, am the light of the world. So Christ challenges the popular theology, says this is going to be for the glory of God, and there's an urgency to what I'm doing, because night is soon coming. But as long as I'm in the world, I'm here to expose the darkness of Satan's kingdom, the darkness of the human condition, and offer an alternative. So, with that sort of background, that Q&A between Christ and his disciples, Jesus does the miracle. But it is, it's almost bizarre what he does. I mean, it is, it is so uncharacteristic of what Jesus normally does. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Now, just kind of picture that. It's almost, it's probably almost hard for you even to imagine Jesus spitting. <laughs> Generally, spitting is not something you like to see somebody do in public. I don't know about you, but if I'm walking down the sidewalk and I see somebody spit on the sidewalk, that's repulsive to me. Maybe it isn't to you. And even make it worse, if the man's chewing tobacco and he spits, that's really repugnant. So Jesus is he's near the temple, and I'll explain why in just a minute. And so he spits in the ground and makes mud. Now think about that for just a moment. That takes you back to Genesis chapter 2. It takes you back to the creation work of God, where he creates man out of the dust of the ground. Remember that? That's, that's the account that we have in the creative work of God. So this is a recreation work of Jesus, the Logos of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. First verse of this book. So here is the Creator recreating something. He's going to recreate this man in terms of his eyes. And so he does what he did when he created Adam, out of the dust of the ground. So what does he do with this little, if I can put it this way, this little mud pack? It says, verse, the next part of verse uh, uh, 6, Then he anointed the man's eyes with some mud. 
That's a very interesting way to put that. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud. John, the gospel writer, John, who saw this, is recording it and, and revealing it to us in his, in his gospel, chooses the word anointed, a sacred act of God, the creator, now recreating for this man's benefit and for the glory of God, he anoints him. Like you anoint someone with oil, or you anoint someone like the Holy Spirit did in anointing Jesus, John says he anointed this man's with eyes with mud. It's a supernatural, God-honoring, sacred, God-glorifying act, anointing him for some greater purpose and some greater service. This man is going to serve God in an extraordinary way as you will see through the interrogations and through what he says. So John chooses to use a supernatural verb. He anoints his eyes. This is the creator recreating out of the dust of the ground and anoints this man for a sacred duty, a sacred mission. And you'll see that explained in just a minute. And so he's... What was the distance, Jim, to the, that uh, pool of Siloam from where he was? Uh, yeah, I was, I was going to explain that right now, uh, because oh, as we read verse 7, and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Siloam is a word that means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Um, we are pretty certain that Jesus is in te- on Temple Mount. The pool of Siloam is very much to the south. If you're on Temple Mount and you go south, it would probably be about uh, almost a half a mile. We have found, and I, I wish I could get on a plane with all of you now and take you to Jerusalem, because they have now done all the archaeological digs of the road that led from Temple Mount down to the Pool of Siloam. Pool of Siloam has been completely excavated. You can see what that looked like. And the Pool of Siloam was a place, a ceremonial pool of washing. It's where the Jew, it was, um, I don't mean to make it sound like a swimming pool, but it sort of looks like a swimming pool when you see it. And it was a pool where you would immerse yourself for spiritual cleansing. And then it would go up to the temple. There were a number of places you could do this. This was the largest. So that Jesus is telling this man to walk all the way from Temple Mount, almost a half a mile down to the, it's a, it's, the Temple Mount is very high. The Pool of Siloam is very, so he's walking downhill to get to the pool. And the text tells us what? He went and washed and came back seeing. Now, please note that this man does not have full sight until he's done going through the ceremonial cleansing in the pool of Siloam. So when he is done with that, then he came back to Temple Mount seeing his sight was restored. So what you have here, if I can put it this way, is a miracle in process. It starts with Jesus spitting 
making this little mud pack, anointing this man's eyes, this man walking all the way down to the pool of Siloam, and he would have immersed himself in that pool, presumably washing the mud pack off of his eyes, and then he sees. Because the verb tense, it's actually a participle, but the verb tense is, as he is coming back to Temple Mount, he's walking back up that road. He's walking north to head up to the temple. He sees. So I want you to think with me about this. Would a crowd of people accompany this man to the Pool of Siloam? Undoubtedly, yes. We're going to read about some of them in verse 8. Would they have accompanied him back from the Pool of Siloam, walking up that steep road to Temple Mount? Yes. So you have a miracle in process, but you have a significant number of people observing this man who, since he was born, had been blind, now seeing. After Jesus did sort of a bizarre certainly not a typical miracle of healing, as he often does. This then sets the stage for several groups of people starting to ask questions. And verse 8 is the first group. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar. So the neighbors, we will conclude, because I think that's the only way to understand that, these would be the people that lived near this young man. And those who had seen him before, so that's a separate group, those who had seen him before as a beggar at the temple. So that tells us his only means of support, the only way he had a living was he was a beggar, presumably at the gates of the temple, which again is a pretty reasonable inference to draw. And they were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. So you have a variety of different groups of people. You have his neighbors and those who had observed him at the Temple Mount begging, saying, hey, this is a guy who's been blind. He used to sit here and beg. No, others are saying it's sort of like him, but it's not the man. So how does this guy respond? And it's in the perfect continuous tense. He kept saying, I am the man. So the language of this at the end of verse nine is this guy, all these people are saying, it can't be this guy. It's got to be somebody else. Just, no, I'm the man. And he keeps saying it over and over and over again. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He replied, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed. And again, there we see it wasn't until he had ceremonially washed that he received his sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. So again, what, and this is the purpose, as you know, of Jesus doing these messianic miracles. What is happening is it's creating a stir. It's creating 
uh, a buzz in the in the in the Jerusalem community. It's raising lots of questions, and so it's quite interesting that you leave this paragraph. Where is he? Jesus has left. So when that man comes back to Temple Mount with his full sight, Jesus isn't there. Verse thirteen, they brought the Pharisees. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly been blind. Now, you have the pronoun in verse 13, they. Who, who are the they? Well, we must assume it's some of the people from the various groups that we read about in verse 8 and verse 9. His neighbors, those who had seen him in the temple as a beggar, I'm not sure it means every single one of them, but it's those people who are so astounded at what Jesus has done, so astounded that this man can see. So what do they do? They take him to the Pharisees to make it a legal matter. Because the Pharisees were the authorities on the law. The Pharisees are the ones, spiritually, in terms of the spiritual leadership, in terms of the application of the law, these people want them to know, them meaning the Pharisees, these people want the Pharisees to know about this. But it is now a legal matter. And as verse 14 makes clear, it becomes a phenomenally important legal matter to the Pharisees. Why? Look at verse 14. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So that's why it's now a legal issue, because when Jesus sped on the ground and made a mud pack, he was working. What did Jesus say to the disciples as they had that Q&A? We must, in verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me. So Jesus is saying, my messianic miracle of making a mud pack and anointing this man's eyes with the mud pack is God-ordained work. For the glory of God. Now, I will pose this question. It's rhetorical, and I know you already know the answer. Did Jesus know it was the Sabbath? Of course he did. Did Jesus know that in terms of Pharisaic legalism, he was doing work? Yes. Is Jesus therefore challenging? their legalistic interpretation of the Sabbath. Yes. So this isn't coincidental. This isn't random. This is deliberate and intentional on the part of the Son of God. He is going to, he has done something that's going to create controversy, but it's going to bring glory to his heavenly Father. So what do the Pharisees do with this? It's now a legal matter. It involves 
their interpretation and application of the rules of the Sabbath. Verse 15, the first interrogation. So the Pharisees again ask him, meaning the man who had received sight, and, and ask him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, I'm in the middle of verse 15, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. The Pharisees respond, but they're divided. Jesus always divides people. You have different responses to the miraculous work of Christ. Response number one, verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And John comments, there was a division among them. So you have two groups of the Pharisees, one extremely legalistic, extremely narrow-minded. We don't care what you say. This man can't be from God because he did work on the Sabbath. The others are saying, wait a minute, time out. He did a messianic sign. He did a messianic miracle. How can he be a sinner? All right, now that's good. That's good. You have the division, and it's a proper understanding of the issue. This guy can't be from God. He worked on the Sabbath. I said, wait, wait a minute. This was a phenomenal miracle. How can we say this guy's a sinner? Verse 17. So they said again to the blind men, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? The man's response. He's a prophet. He's from God. To say he's a prophet means he's from God. He's representing God. Good answer. Exhaustive answer? No. You're going to see what happens to this man a little bit later on. Now, the Pharisees, in verse 18, go to this man's parents. And so now they interrogate his parents. Again, John uses that phrase. He often uses the Jews, which doesn't mean every Jew. It means those who who are the Pharisaic leaders. The Jews who did not believe that he had been blind and received his sights until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does now he see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. Now that's very sensible and very reasonable answer. But when they say he is of age means this, because how the Jews would have framed this in the first century, this man is at least 13 years old, because that was the demarcation point of being of age. So that's why most commentators and expositors would argue he's a teenager or a very young adult. So they're saying, look, this guy's of age. He's of legal age. You go ask him, because we don't know. He will speak for himself. Now, John tells us an important piece of information. 
and probably your translation, just like mine, puts verse 22 in parentheses. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So John is telling us a little piece of information that probably his parents did know who did it, did know that this was messianic, but they were afraid of being ostracized and kicked out of the synagogue. So they say, he's of age, ask him. They're not lying. They're not misrepresenting truth. They're just saying, you ask our son. He's over 13. He can give an account for himself. So first interrogation of this young man, the interrogation of the parents, bring no significant results. So now there's a second interrogation of this young man. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And when they say this man, they mean Jesus. So look at how they're putting this. They're, they're, they're forcing this guy into a spiritual box. Give glory to God. And the way you give glory to God is acknowledging that this man's a sinner. What a dilemma. What a terrible thing to do to this young guy. I love how this young man answered this. Look at verse 25. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. Isn't that a great answer? The bottom line is I'm not getting involved in your doctrinal discussions or disputes about whether he's a sinner or not. I just know one thing. I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've already told you. You would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Look at, look, look at the humor here. Look at the biting humor. Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> Obviously, they're not interested in that, but this is a humorous dig. Do you want to become his disciples? Verse 28, and they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. Now, I want to stop there for a minute because this is a line being drawn in the theological sand. There is now open conflict between Jesus and Moses, between Pharisaic Judaism and genuine biblical messianic understanding of Jesus. These are an open, irreconcilable conflict. It is either Moses or Jesus. That's not how Jesus is putting it, but that's how they're putting it. We are loyal to Moses. You're not. We are loyal to Moses. Jesus isn't. We are loyal to Moses and therefore have the inside track. He's not. He's therefore not. He is not of God. 
So they're making Moses and Jesus polar opposites. They're making Moses and Jesus irreconcilable. That is not what Jesus wants, but that's what they're doing. Continuing, verse 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. So how does this man, this man, by this time, I'm, I'm amazed at his boldness. I'm amazed at his courage. Because he answers in verse 30. Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Then he answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? This is they, meaning the Pharisees, and they cast him out. So I want to look at how this young man responds. Why is this such an amazing thing? The first premise that he lays on the table is in verse 31. God does not hear the prayers of sinners. Now, understand what that means. A person who is in rebellion against God, a person who doesn't care about God, God only hears one of their prayers, be merciful to me, a sinner, save me. So what this man is summarizing is the teaching of the Old Testament. A person in rebellion against God, God doesn't hear their prayers. They have no relationship with him. They have no personal intimacy with him. The second thing he says is listen. This is the other premise he's putting on the table. This is a phenomenal miracle. And with some hyperbole, since the world began, never has a miracle list been done where a man born blind now sees. If he's not from God, he could do nothing. So the two premises, number one, God does not hear the prayer of a rebellious sinner because that person has no relationship with him. Number two, there's never been anything so phenomenal done like a man blind from birth can now see. This man is from God. And these two premises show that. He has talked to God. He's prayed to God. He is the intercessor with God. And he does fantastic messianic miracles. Therefore, he is from God. So that's Pharisees the great teachers, the great rabbis who studied in the seminaries of Judaism, they say to him in a statement of personal abuse, you were born in utter sin and you teach us? That is a slam. That, that is a rebuke. That is a statement of personal abuse to that man. And then they did a second thing, and they cast him out. What does that mean? They expelled him from the synagogue in Jerusalem. This is, albeit impulsive, on the part of the Pharisees. They are angry. They are frustrated. 
They could not get this man to be a witness against Jesus. They could not get this man. They could not get his parents. They couldn't get the evidence they were looking for to begin the process of getting him executed. So impulsively, they rebuke him, they abuse him, and they throw him out of the the synagogue. All right, now, let's see if you got questions here. Yeah, um, when he was going, when the blind man was was going to the the um, to the pool, he was probably going in faith. Sure, in obedience to what Jesus had said. Yes, right. And that this could happen, and the Pharisees were having. They were struggling with this because it didn't fit their paradigm, and um, and they were being exposed to a fairly good sized audience. I would think by now. What um, can you comment on that? Just in general, I mean, if if a person sets his mind against God, even though he can believe in God. Believing and receiving are two different things. They saw it. I can't help but believe that they believed it, but they were having trouble with it from their own acceptance point of view because it didn't fit their paradigm. Can you comment on that? And maybe. Well, I. It's hard. It's a little bit difficult because. We don't quite know all that was going on in their in their minds and how they're processing this. We did see in that one section in verse 16 and 17 that they're divided in how to respond to this. One group is saying, wait a minute, this guy is doing something supernatural. And the others are saying, the issue isn't a miracle. The issue is that it was done on the Sabbath. So, I mean, that's quite insightful for me because you do have some of the, we have no idea the numbers. John isn't giving us numbers. He's just saying some and then others. But it is causing a division, as Jesus always does. One group is acknowledging something supernatural has happened. So, I mean, you're right, Fred. They are believing. And what is the content of their belief? Something supernatural has happened. They're not embracing Jesus. They're not, your word, receiving Jesus. They're just acknowledging something. The other group, even more, it's more bizarre than anything I can possibly conceive. They're acknowledging a miracle, but they say it was done on the Sabbath. That's the issue. And you think, what? Wait a minute. That, this guy has been blind since birth, and now he sees. Isn't that something we should, no, it was done on the Sabbath. It's a legal issue. And so it just shows you how hard the heart of some of the Pharisees was. It didn't matter what Jesus did. They're still making a legal issue because they hate him so much that it doesn't matter what he does or what he says, all they want to do is get rid of him. And so do they, do they acknowledge, believe that something's happened? Yes. But they're not putting together anything that leads them to personal faith in Jesus as a Messiah. All they want to do is kill him. And that is still... One of the, and I don't want to get into this bunny trail because it's a big one, but 
That's one of the reasons why often the scriptures use words like that the Holy Spirit has to woo, the Holy Spirit has to draw, the Holy Spirit has... So it's even the work of God through his Holy Spirit in bringing unbelievers to a point where they are going to acknowledge something's going on and then eventually embrace and accept and receive Christ as a personal Savior. I'm always reminded of a verse in Hebrew in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul, in trying to describe the first three verses, trying to describe the state of a person before Christ, dead in your sin. These men, these Pharisees, are dead in their sin. It doesn't matter what Jesus does or what Jesus says. They are not going to believe in him. Uh, this is the majority of the Pharisees. And so here you see it again. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. They interrogated the man twice. They interrogated his parents. They couldn't get the evidence they wanted. So what do they do? Impulsively throw everybody out of the, syn uh, the synagogue. But what about this man? We haven't, we haven't seen this man take a step of faith. We haven't seen this man believe in Jesus. That's what the end of the chapter is all about. Any other questions about the interrogations? Anything I've got, else? I've got one. Yeah. Um, By the I, way, I, did you get that stuff I sent you? In the I, I did. It's okay. uh, really great stuff, and I really appreciate okay, it. I just want to make you. sure you got it. Um, on, uh, uh, I'd like to go back to 9-6 and the term anointed. Um, it's one of these terms that I see kind of overused by translators in the scripture. It, it, it is, I, I see this as epicureo, I think, is the current term. And then, you know, as I go and try to look at the whole counsel of God, I get um, four other terms that mean anointed, God's anointed, or, it, you know, like the chiro, which is God's, or, um, God has anointed us in Hebrews 1.9. This seems to be um, not indicating supernatural empowerment, but just an application is what it seems it looks like to me, and I was, and you kind of said that the opposite. So I was wondering where I would, what I was missing there. Well, I think we're putting a couple of things together here. Number one is the the way in which Jesus, in the beginning of verse six, the way in which Jesus prepares for doing the miracle by spitting in the ground, making bud. And again, I, I, I really do believe this is part of the, the recreating work of God, Jesus, who is who's God, the recreating work of, of, of God, as he did in Genesis 2, where he creates out of the dust of the ground. You, you have to think of that. And I am rather, I'm rather suspicious that even the Pharisees, when they thought about it, would have thought like this. But then as he did in Genesis 2, he makes mud and he makes dirt something of extreme value because he takes dirt and makes it into a man who is created in the image of God. So here you have Jesus taking mud and anointing this man's eyes. So again, that's, that's kicking it up. He's taking something like mud and doing something supernatural with it 
that is going to bring sight to this man. And so I think John is correct. And when you use the, when you have the little prefix epi, E-P-I, which is what's in that Greek word, that, that has the idea of putting it upon something. So you're, you're putting it upon something. So he is anointing this man's blindness with some recreating supernatural power that the Son of God, the creator of the world, is now doing for this man. So he's recreating and he's anointing this man's blindness. Because he puts it in his head, that's, that's the darkness. That's the blindness. This man hasn't been able to ever, ever see, ever. Now, Jesus, the creator of the universe, is anointing this man with mud, just like he created human to be his image bearers out of mud, of dirt. So, Russ, I think you're, you're, we're putting all these things together in the context. This is an, this is an incredible miracle of our creator. Yep. Jesus is our creator. I, I I get the bridge. I didn't I, I didn't see the bridge to Genesis two. I, yeah, I, it's just it's really it's really neat. It's a neat. Then it make then the miracle makes sense of why Jesus did it this way. Cool. Um. Also, um. In um. When you get to nine thirty five and thirty eight, it yeah. talks about the Son of Man. And I didn't get he, there yet, Rush. You're ahead of me. And he worshipped him. Yeah. And I'm wondering why the Son of Man is a title of worship and why he would recognize yeah, you didn't, that. You're ahead of me. We didn't get to that yet. We're about I know. To, I'm, I'm, I'm prefacing that I'm so gonna, I don't, gonna, I don't interrupt answer, you. <laughs> I'm gonna answer, I'll be answering that, I think. Okay? Right. If I didn't, uh, let me know. Thank you. Can we go into the last part? Any other questions? All right. Let's look at verse 35. Now, because we don't, we still don't know what happens to this young man. We saw him talk to Jesus, saw him talk to the Pharisees and all that. What happens to him? Jesus heard that they'd cast him out. Remember, that means cast him out of the synagogue. And having found him, oh, I love that. Jesus sought him out. When I preached on this once, I put it this way. Jesus wasn't done with this man yet. He'd healed him. He did an incredible creative miracle. But Jesus now wants to get to the crux of the matter. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, when Jesus uses that, it's believe, you know what that means, but Son of Man, remember, whenever you see Son of Man, always think Daniel 7.13. Because Daniel 7.13 is it's an incredibly important chapter, it really is, but one like a son of man comes up to the ancient of days and receives a kingdom, receives dominion, receives authority. That's messianic. Son of man is a title, a messianic title for the, for the Christ who will rule and reign over this rebellious planet. So when Christ asks this man who now can see, do you believe in the son of man? Do you believe in that messianic figure who has rights and authority over all creation and all of earth, do you believe? And he answered, who is he, sir, that I might believe? Jesus said, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And I mean, very rarely does Jesus do this, but he does for this man. I am the Son of Man. 
the one who's speaking to you right now, the one that you now see with the eyes that you couldn't see for all your life. I am, you have seen him. Oh. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. So this man goes from exposure to Jesus through an incredible messianic creative miracle to understanding the Son of Man and responding with faith, I believe, and culminating in worship. So this man has come to the pre-designed point that Jesus had said to his disciples way back in verse 3. This man was blind so the works of God might be displayed in him. The works of God. Jesus did creative work in making the mud pie to display the glory and power of God in this man so that this man would come to saving faith and this man would worship. And in a very real sense, this is what it's all about, to move people from an understanding of who Jesus is to an understanding that leads to personal faith to an understanding that leads to personal faith and a life of worship, a life of devotion to God. And yeah. that's what Jesus has done in this, to this man. You know, I, you know I, I think all of us probably could relate to this at some point in our life. I mean, we've all given our testimonies. Um, a lot of us have, and um, we weren't headed uh, to the, the pool. We were headed away from God and from Christ, and, and he pursued us with his Holy Spirit. That's right. The crucifixion. And, and so we all were blind, <laughs> and now we can see, and that's why we're here today, and so thankful uh, that... Um, we are here and that you can open this word to us and make it uh, increasingly real as we grow in him. So thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I love that. I, I just love that little statement that we, we read there at the, at the beginning of, of verse 35, having found him, Jesus was seeking him. I have a very, very dear friend. Uh, we, we have a common friend who's not a believer, and he always puts it this way. Well, the hounds of heaven are after him, <laughs> meaning that, you know, he's going to come to salvation. He's going to come to faith, the hounds of heaven. Uh, well, anyway, I'm not sure that fits, but I thought I'd say it. Look at verse 39, because now here's an applicational point, and I want to make sure you really see what Jesus is saying here. Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, here, you've just seen a miracle that involves physical sight. But what Jesus is talking about in verse 39 is spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. Spiritual sight and spiritually and spiritual blindness, that those who do not see may see, 
those who do not see what? Their eyes are not spiritually opened to really understand who God is, that he loves them, that he's offering them salvation, and offering them a whole new creation life, may see, may believe. But those and those who see may become blind. Okay, now what does that mean? Because that's not, but those who see, those who seemingly are the enlightened, i.e. the Pharisees, may become blind. Because if anyone in Jerusalem should have bowed the knee to Jesus and understood and acknowledged and worshipped him for who he was, it was the Pharisees. I've said this before. They had vast portions of the Old Testament memorized. They knew the prophecies. And Jesus is doing all this stuff before their very eyes. They see they're the enlightened ones, but they're really blind. Isaiah 6, 9, when Isaiah is commissioned to be the prophet to Judah, God says to him, you know, the blind, the blind will not see. They're, they're not going to be open. I, you know, Isaiah's assignment was terrible because God is similar to Jeremiah. I'm sending you out to be my prophet, but on, by the way, guys, nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody's going to follow you. I mean, I, I don't know how you guys, I just said, well, now, Lord, I'm not sure I want to take this assignment. You got to find somebody else. I'm not qualified for this. So I'm being a little facetious, but this, this metaphor of blindness is throughout the scriptures. And that is one of the reasons why Jesus will say to the Pharisees, you are the blind leading the blind. And so Christ is saying something here. I want you to see that. That's what he means when he says, for judgment I came into the world. In what sense? Those who do not see, those who are not spiritually enlightened, do not have the spiritual eyes to understand that they may see, they may come to faith, they may believe. And those who see, who are the enlightened ones, who should be responding, they'll become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, are we also blind? Did they get the point Jesus was making? I'll ask it again because you obviously didn't hear me. Did they get the point Jesus was making? Yes. They're saying, are we blind? I love Christ's answer. Tim, I got a question. Yes, Woody. Uh, does he mean... Those, if you could physically see me and don't believe, you become blind. Um, possibly, but I think it's it's more than that, Woody, because they they see Jesus physically, they see Jesus physically doing all his messianic miracles but they still refuse to believe. So what word would you use to characterize them? Jesus chooses the word blind. They're spiritually blind. Okay, thank you. Willfully ignorant? <laughs> Question. Well, yeah, but it's, it's not ignorant in the sense of not having the knowledge you need right. to make a decision. 
but it requires you your will you you're exactly. forcing yourself to exactly. be ignorant <laughs> that, that's exactly right yeah i mean it, it's an unbelievable arrogant spiritual ignorance it, i mean it's every time i study this i'm just absolutely astonished but then i have to think of my father my uh, son's wife's father uh, my son's father-in-law I've talked about him before. He just had a stroke two weeks ago. He is really bad. His speech is affected. He can hardly walk, but he still refuses to come to Christ. I can't understand that. But Peter is blind, and it doesn't matter. So I, I just finished a series at my church. Uh, the title was, Who is Christ? Who is Jesus? And Why It Matters. And uh, they put all my stuff in a booklet, and everybody that uh, attended got a copy of that. So Peggy and I sent him a copy of that booklet. Because I've said to him many times, I just want you to look at and consider the claims of Christ. And because of his physical condition, because he is an epitome of spiritual blindness. I don't care what the evidence is. I don't care what you say. I still am not going to believe. I don't need Jesus in my life. So what we're praying is that in these last, I, I think we can say weeks, months, because he's had a series of strokes now. We want him, we want him to know Christ. I don't want him to do an eternity without Christ. But for me, just like the Pharisees, he's an epitome of spiritual blindness. I don't care what the evidence is. They saw all the evidence. They saw all the miracles, but they still wouldn't believe. So that's spiritual blindness. The question. Um, yes, go ahead. When you went back, and I mean, it was interesting, you did Nehemiah before. Oh, yeah, a while back, yeah. And you look at how they set up, and you commented on towards the end of Nehemiah, where um, look at what's going to happen in the next three, four hundred years. Yeah. And the absolute perversion of right. the temple, right? And And this really does bring to light that stark contrast behind what Nehemiah was attempting to do. You know, I mean, is it, is it truly a power corrupts thing? Was it driven by their power? Or what was it a, a two degrees off center kind of thing over 400 years? What what drove that much of a deviation from the heart? Well, that's, boy, Glenn, that is a great question. <laughs> I tried to answer a little bit of that in, in my book, uh, Covenant People, on the what happened to the Jews during that intertestamental period? Um, and a simple answer is this, uh, Glenn, it's, it's a simple answer. A very significant number of the Jewish people who had come back to Israel accommodated to the Greco-Roman world. They accommodated to it. And they just, they slid in and fit with it. They learned the Greek language. The in the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Herodians, they would represent that. But in reaction to that was a group that said, listen, we can't accommodate. We've got to dig our heels in and adhere to the law. They become the Pharisees. But in adhering to the law, what they meant was adhering to a legalistic, performance-based approach to God. And when Jesus shows up, that's what he sees, a divided Israel some loyal to Rome, to the willing to do whatever it needs to do to keep Rome happy. We're, we're financially doing really well under the Greco-Roman world. And then you have the Pharisees who are digging in, committed to a legalistic interpretation of the law, 
because if we don't do that, God's going God's going to send us in exile again. So and is what this was a lost was the vitality of that faith that you see in Nehemiah eight when Ezra read the law and they responded. In if you remember that when we studied that, they responded right. as they heard the law read in grief and worship. They confessed their sins. And they also celebrated the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. But over the next 400 years, all of that's going to be lost. That vitality and robust faith is going to be lost by accommodation to the Greco-Roman world and by digging into a legalistic righteousness. That's a short answer. Does that? (laughs) No, it it makes sense. It's just uh, I'm just questioning how much of that is power and how much of that is being a nationalist. Um, it's, it's both. Okay. It's both and. For those who are accommodating, it is about power and influence. For those, it, it, the Pharisees would be that other that other group, and that okay. there's still the minority that have that personal faith and devotion to God. Joseph and Mary would be examples. John the Baptist parents, Zacchaeus and Elizabeth, they would be examples. They still adhere to that very personal devotion to God, but presumably, and not presumably, they were, there's no doubt about it, they were in a minority. Well, and they, 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 they bring up the, the widow bringing the tithe, right? So yeah, yes, exactly. we, we know right. that, that they were there. Right. Okay. All yep. right. Thank yep. you. Yep. Uh, you know, this puts, this passage puts this story in a different light, uh, Dr. Ekman, and I, the way you phrased it for me, uh, the, you know, the question I would have is that I have seen these people that willfully didn't accept Jesus, and and certainly they were victim to a, the temptation of power. But I can see how they felt that they were responsibility for order, for a religious the, the purity, the adherence to the the, the traditions. And oh, yeah. so they, I can see where Satan would use that to deceive them and get them to thinking that they're just doing their job. Yes. Well, I think so. Um, that's how they saw it, despite the evidence <laughs> to yes. the contrary. That's how they saw it. I mean, it, it word, use the words of Glenn, the Pharisees are the ethnic nationalists of the day. They are the patriots, another way of putting it. And um, I mean, they, and, and that is defined by rigorous adherence to the law. And the Sabbath is the touchstone of that. And so, yeah, I mean, and you're right. Satan will use those characteristics to foster what tragically was the situation in the time Jesus shows up. The last verse of chapter 9. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. I read from the ESV. It's a difficult verse in some ways to translate. But in the context, I think it makes sense. Their blindness, their spiritually blind state will remain a spiritually blind state until they make things right with God, which means until they recognize who Jesus is, accept who Jesus is, believe who Jesus is, 
just like the blind man did, as we saw in verse 35. In a very real sense, Jesus is saying your guilt remains until you open those spiritual eyes, see who I am, embrace who I am, and believe who I am. And of course, that in a sense, that applies to everybody today in 2020. If you remain, and I don't mean you men specifically, because I'm assuming all of you have made a faith commitment to Christ, but if you continue to refuse the evidence that is so clear about who Jesus is and what he's done, etc., you are spiritually blind and you will remain spiritually blind and your guilt will remain, i.e. your guilt before God. So it's a, it's a very powerful and very penetrating indictment of the Pharisees. And their spiritual blindness is eternally significant. It's another reason it's not in this passage, but in another passage, when Jesus, again, is talking to the Pharisees, he says, you are the blind leading the blind. They are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel. And instead of being the spiritual leaders of Israel and leading the people into light, leading them into truth, they're leading them blindly. And their blindness, that is the people's blindness, remains. So, I mean, again, this is a severe indictment of these individuals uh, who are to be the spiritual leaders of the, of the nation. So that will not make friends with Jesus, for the, with the Pharisees. Their, their hatred of him and their, their um, intense desire to bring this guy to, to, the, to the Roman Empire to have him executed is going to increase. All right. Uh, sorry, we ran out of time last week to deal with that. Does that make sense? Any questions about that particularly? Yes, Jim, this is Woody. Yes. Uh, the phrase, I was blind, but now I see, you know, that could be applied to me and I suppose others. Uh, so if those same uh, people that he's talking to would be convinced and believe, uh, then it would be the right thing, right? Absolutely. No, I mean, you, you nailed it. As earlier, when the blind man is, is being interrogated by the Pharisees, he says, there's one thing I know. I was blind, but now I see. What that being able to see physically, be able to see with his eyes, then becomes a metaphor, a figure of speech for the spiritual blindness, the spiritually blind eyes, if you will, that only Christ can open. And, and Woody, for me, as well as for you, for me in 1972, for you in your conversion, I was blind. I was absolutely blind. And I refused to see, I refused to consider seriously the evidence of who Christ was un until 1972. Then my spiritual eyes were open because I put my faith in Christ. And all of a sudden, as a result of that, and I'm sure it's true for all of you men too, all of a sudden things began to make sense that did not make sense before my faith commitment to Christ. So they, what's going on in this chapter is physical blindness is a metaphor for spiritual blindness. And that's, of course, the indictment he levels at the Pharisees, which is a very severe indictment, as we've already said. All right? Dr. Eckman? Uh, yes. So the, the Pharisees' spiritual blindness 
is based on their adherence to the Mosaic law and, and refusal to recognize the Messiah. That's right. Okay. That's right. That's right. And the, the, the very uh, convoluted and twisted legalism that they've fallen into in regards to, to the law, to the Mosaic covenant. All right, I'm going to pray and I'll let you go here. Thank you, Father, for this uh, good, good enriching study in chapter nine. Uh, I find it one of the more challenging chapters, one because of how Jesus uh, did the miracle. But yet, the more we study it, the more we see what he's doing and why he did it. Lord, I thank you, too, that I'm trusting this is true. Every one of the men in the group, you've opened their eyes spiritually. You've opened their eyes spiritually that they see and believe. They're no longer spiritually blind. They're spiritually robust, vital. They can see the truth, embrace the truth, internalize the truth. And it is continuing the work of transformation in their lives. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to come to planet Earth, to live a life, to suffer and die for us, to be resurrected, to ascend back into glory, where you rule and reign at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, evidence once again that we belong to you and we are your child. Thank you for each one of these men, giving me your grace today and the rest of this week, and it continued to grow as men of faith, men of God, who represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.